May all be seated, and at this time we'll have the main message for the day, entitled, That Others May Live, Part 2, by Pastor Adrian Davis. Thank you, Brother Landon. Good afternoon, brethren. And those online and will join us online, greetings. I don't know if you saw this article in the news yesterday. Quite fascinating. I'll just begin reading it here. When two Florida teenagers were swept out miles into the Atlantic Ocean by a strong current, they prayed to God for help. And those pleas were answered in the form of a passing ship named Amen. Tyler Smith and Heather Brown, students at Christ's Church Academy in Jacksonville, said they were at a local beach last month when they took a dip in the water and got pulled out into the ocean. Smith told First Coast News that they tried to swim back to land, but tired out in the rough seas. Realizing they couldn't make it back, Smith said he grabbed Brown's hand and started praying. He was the first one to just start calling out to God, Brown told the outlet, just praying for strength to swim. Tyler Smith and Heather Brown are interviewed by a local television station about their dramatic rescue at sea. Tyler Smith and Heather Brown are, goes on to say, uh, Christ Church Academy. They're just giving a headline, a caption. That's when Eric Wagner's boat named Amen appeared. So they're out there at sea. Uh, miles out, can't get back to land, these two teenagers, and they just decided to pray. And then this boat appears out of nowhere called Amen. In a Facebook post on April 18th, Wagner said he was taking his boat from Delray, Florida to New Jersey when when he heard a desperate scream and saw an arm flailing in the water. When Wagner reached the teens who were not wearing life vests, they were pale and shivering. Smith's lips were white and he was having trouble talking. Brown was lucid. Both teens were too weak to climb into the boat, so Wagner and a shipmate pulled them aboard. According to Wagner, the teens were almost two miles from the shore and had been in the water for more than 90 minutes. So this was certain death for them, and uh, just decided to pray, and then this boat appears called Amen. When Smith and Brown found out the name of Wagner's boat, they both became emotional. Exhausted and near the end, the boy told me he called out for God's help. Then we showed up. I told them the name of the vessel. That's when they started to cry. I think, brethren, that this situation, which was reported in the news yesterday, is just a great metaphor for what we're doing that there are people who need to be rescued. And when they're at the end of their tether, when it looks like all hope is lost, their saviors appear. Let's go to Matthew 23 to begin. Matthew 23. And in verse 37 the introduction to the prophecies in Matthew 24, we read Christ's 
crying out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto you. How often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So Jerusalem is an evil city. It slays the prophets. And this was not God's will. God's will was to gather Jerusalem, but they have chosen this fate. And therefore their house is left unto them desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me again until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is the ship called Amen that appears just at the moment when it looks like all hope is lost. So the prophecies tell us that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. They tell us there'll be a wholesale slaughter of the people of Judah in Jerusalem. But then Christ is telling us something's going to change. And these very same people and the descendants of these people who continually slay all the prophets have no regard for God's word, something's going to change. And they're going to look to him whom they have pierced. And they're going to be rejoicing. Blessed is he who comes. Here comes the vessel called Amen. Fine, when, when it looks like all hope has been lost. Look at Isaiah 1. In terms of this desolation of Jerusalem. We'll compare this, what Christ said. And this, this turnaround situation. Where they're finally saying that Christ is blessed. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When they have... They, they themselves persecuted and, and crucified him. Isaiah 1, and in verse 7, the prophet writes, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. This is the prophecy. This is what Christ said. I, I w- my will was to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. You didn't want this, so this is what you get instead. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land... Strangers devour it in your presence. The very land that was promised to you, the very land that you should have ruled the whole world from, strangers are coming into that land and destroying it right in front of your eyes. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. It just looks completely desolate, just like there's no life here. But notice what the prophet says. Same pattern as Christ, where they're going to say, blessed is he who comes. He says, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So I think we all know the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were completely destroyed with fire. No trace left. Completely burned down. And the prophet is saying that if it weren't for the fact that God left a remnant of Israel, a remnant of Judah, then they wouldn't exist. There is such hatred for these people that they would not exist. No flesh would be left alive. And yet, a remnant survives. That at the moment when it looks like all hope is lost, a vessel called Amen. Amen. Let it be, let the word of God be so. Because God has prophesied that 
Zion is forever. That he's the God of Israel forever. Therefore, Israel must be forever. So when it looks like all hope is lost, the ship called Amen appears. Last week, brethren, I spoke about this crest that a gentleman was wearing, and it said that others may live, and how that struck me as such a a powerful slogan. And I said, you know, we said if I was going to write a book entitled That Others May Live with five chapters, how we would arrange those chapters. And and sorry for those of you who didn't hear it last week, uh, because this is a continuation. But we said the first chapter would be the beast. We We would begin with bad news. And that's what we're reading here, that the people of God must be made desolate. They must be brought to the brink of destruction in order to come to the depth of repentance. God doesn't want a kingdom of priests made up of hypocrites. And so Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 30, you people are going into the promised land, and you're going to be blessed, but you're also going to be cursed. All of the blessings that I've pronounced are going to come upon you, but so are all of the curses. And so you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be uh, humiliated and enslaved and scattered to the four corners of the earth. But then Moses also says, you will be gathered and brought back into the land. And so we see there's going to be a remnant that will be saved. So we start with the bad news, and then chapter 2 was the good news, the gospel. That the good news is that Isaiah, uh, that Isaiah preaches, or the good news according to Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah, is the same gospel that Christ preached. Bad news, but all hope is not lost. There's good news. You will be restored. You will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you will be established, and the kingdom will be restored to Israel. The gospel that was preached to them is the same gospel we preach today. The only difference is, in them it was not mixed with faith, as it is with us. So we're not coming up with a new gospel. It's the same gospel, there's one gospel. And the good news is that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. The third chapter, we said, would be atonement. And what we said in this chapter is that the atonement is not with God in the world. In fact, it's very clear from the prophecies in, in Zechariah 14 that there are people in the world that actively resist keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not one with God at all, to the point where God will send plagues to bring them to heal, and he will rule them with an iron rod. So there's no at with the world. The at is with Israel. That this is what Moses foresaw, that you hypocrites will be taken through such desolation, such devastation, that the repentance that will come from you will come from the core of your being. You will, you will repent wholeheartedly and you will love God with your entire heart and soul. And Moses foresaw in Deuteronomy 30 the, the new covenant that these people would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would love God with their entire heart with no hypocrisy. And so this is the atonement. The atonement or the atonement is with Israel. Chapter 4, we said, was teachers. That while all of this is happening on the earth, and Israel goes into the millennium as the kingdom of priests, as human beings, the way we are now with the Holy Spirit and the understanding that we have teaching others, that the nations, the tribes of Israel, would be as we are today. But they need teachers. And so we are studying today 
We are understanding the Torah today. We are immersed in the Torah today like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in due season. Because we are so immersed in the, in the word today, we can bring forth fruit in due season. And when we are harvested as the spring harvest and born into the family of God, we will oversee the operations on the earth. And if any Israelite is deviating from the law, teachers will appear and say, this is the way. Walk you in it. Because Israel must come through the millennium, prepare for the second resurrection, and be prepared to be born into the family of God with the spring harvest. So that the fall harvest and the spring harvest are all together in God's kingdom. But Israel must lead this process, and they need teachers. And so we concluded the book with the chapter marriage. That Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, as a bride prepared for her husband, and that New Jerusalem covers the saints. And God comes then and marries the saints. At the end of last week's sermon, I concluded with the pledge. So when I mentioned this, I was in Ottawa, and I mentioned this pledge, and one of the brethren there told me this comes from the Canadian Armed Forces. And I believe the, the Americans have a similar pledge as well. And it's from the search and rescue technicians. And when I read the pledge, and I concluded it with, with it last week, I was just uh, impacted by the selflessness of the pledge. And, and, and I, just, I was struck to think, how is it that hu- carnal human beings can be so selfless? And yet among us, Christians, with this profound truth, many of us are very selfish. We, we've, we've replaced the kingdom. We're, we're, we don't believe in heaven. We know the Bible doesn't say we're going to heaven. We believe we're going to the kingdom. But the attitude of, it's all about me, I want to be in heaven. No, it's not heaven, it's the kingdom. Uh, a lot of us have this attitude. And, and it struck me that this is not the Christian way. That the Christian way is the mind of Christ, which is to have a mind for others, to, to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. And so I was really struck by this uh, pledge by the search and rescue technicians. Let me read it again. Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement, to the best of my ability and to the limitations of my physical and psychological endurance, I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to safety those victims of disaster entrusted to my care by the assignment of the mission to which I have consented. These things I shall do that others may live. Every time I read it, I'm blown away by it. And I believe that there's a biblical basis for this. And what I want to do in part two of the sermon is just unpack this pledge and see the biblical support for it. How do we see this fitting our calling? Let's begin with the phrase, those entrusted to our care. Those entrusted, those victims of disaster, entrusted, he sa- it says here, to my care. I think we need to think of this in terms of our care. Those victims of disaster entrusted to our care by the assignment of the mission to which we have consented. Psalm 135. Psalm 135. 
We have begun the Bible study series on the book of Psalms. We started that last week. Hopefully you can join us at 7.30 Eastern Time each Wednesday evening. And it's amazing. The book of Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. It's the book Christ quoted most of all. And so there's something in Psalms that I think we need to deepen our understanding of. And we'll be doing this line by line, book by book, chapter by chapter through the book of Psalms. Here in Psalm 135 and verse 3, the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. Verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Israel is God's peculiar treasure. Going back to Deuteronomy, going back to Exodus, it was very clear that these people were handpicked by God to be a kingdom of priests and to be a peculiar treasure to God. And God has not backed away from this statement. God doesn't say things in jest. God means exactly what he says. And our brother Jan has uh, spoken about replacement theology and how we need to be careful about replacement theology. Replacement theology makes God a liar. It's that God says one thing and promises one thing, and then we replace what he promises with something else, and it makes God a liar. The word of God is true. What makes God God is he speaks, and it's everything he says. He created the whole universe with his word. That's how powerful his word is, and his word is always true. And every promise he makes, he keeps. And it's impossible for him to lie. And so Israel is his peculiar treasure. But we know from Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29 that these people have to be severely punished. And they are being severely punished. And the whole world is being reconfigured for the most severe of punishments. That it's coming into the time of Jacob's trouble. These These are the people of disaster. These are the victims of disaster that have been entrusted to us. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14, and in verse 1, Isaiah writes, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. He has not forgotten Jacob. He has not replaced Jacob. He will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel. This is the scripture. We can't come along and say the church has replaced Israel. It's all spiritual now. God is very clear as we read the the prophet Isaiah that he will have mercy on Jacob and he will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. They will be rescued from the four corners of the earth and they will be set in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob will be the most prominent house in the world. That these people will be elevated above all other peoples of the earth. And all the peoples of the earth will look to Israel when Christ returns. In chapter 44 of Isaiah, chapter 44, and verse 23, The prophet writes, sing, O you heavens. This this is a time of great rejoicing. This is the good news. The whole universe is, is involved in the rejoicing of this good news. Sing, O you heavens, for the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. 
The heavens and the earth are all in unison over the joy of this good news. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree therein. What is the cause of this celebration? Why so much joy? What's the good news? He tells us, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. This is the rescue operation. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. God is the God of Israel forever. We see that in Luke 1. He says he'll be glorified in Israel forever. He says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel forever. Therefore, there must be an Israel forever. That when it looks like all hope is lost, and Israel looks like they're going to be totally destroyed, that no flesh should be saved alive, that's when Christ steps in and stops it. Satan is trying to destroy the promises of God. God intends to keep them. Look at Zechariah 12 to see this rescue operation. In Zechariah 12, and we'll begin in verse 1, the prophet writes, the burden of the word of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord. For who? For Israel. This is the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth. So just in case we're not sure who's speaking, it's the creator of the universe. And forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. So all the people round about are the sword of the Lord. And all the people round about are there to destroy Jerusalem. But Christ said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So these people are coming to curse Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem, and this is what causes this deep, heartfelt repentance and this recognition of Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. So here God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem. So the beast power is, is, in, is extant, and it has gathered all people against Judah and Jerusalem. And God says, when this happens... I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling that these nations will have to drink. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. So there's going to be a a turning around of events. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. So uh, a word of advice to the nations, don't mess with Jerusalem. Don't mess with the apple of God's eye. And yet they're so drunk on this, they think they have every right to Jerusalem. And God's saying, I'm going to deal with this. These are still his people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And I think from this we can see all the people of the earth will be gathered together against it. There'll be complete agreement that these people do not belong in Jerusalem. They need to be rooted out. And and everybody will agree with the beast power. Yes, let's go in there. Let's send the armies in there. Let's destroy these people. And God's saying, I don't care. I'm the creator of the universe. I put the spirit of man within him. And And if everybody is in agreement that Jerusalem should be destroyed, I disagree. God's saying, I disagree. In that day, says the Lord, 
I will smite every horse with astonishment. So this is the ship called Amen. This is Christ saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. What I said from the beginning, the the moment I spoke in Genesis, everything that I said will come true in Revelation. And no one can stop it. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Amen. He says, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah. So I'm going to, I've been hiding from Judah. I'm the God who hides himself. And I've been hiding from Judah, but I'm now going to appear for Judah. And I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. So they realized all hope was lost, and now God is appearing for their salvation. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood. So all these powerful armies that are surrounding Jerusalem, they're going to be like wood in the fire. That God is just going to burn them up. And like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. So there's an agenda to take these people out. There's an agenda to replace them with a different ideology. And God is laughing at this. He says, I'm not going to have this. And he's going to swoop in and destroy these people. And he says, despite what it appears, Jerusalem will be inhabited. That my people will dwell safely in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So God is going to save Judah first, then he's going to save Jerusalem. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. So God is going to give the weakest person in Jerusalem the strength and the courage and the skill of David. And the house of David will be like God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Same thing that Joel saw, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out among these people, which is the very thing that Moses said in Deuteronomy 30. So all the prophets are just repeating the original prophecy of Moses. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. So Christ said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're finally saying it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. There's this real recognition and heartfelt repentance. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So this estrangement, this alienation between God and his people, it will end. And they will recognize him as their God and they will say he's blessed coming in the name of the Lord. My question for you is, where do we fit in all of this? So God has his physical people, the physical descendants of Jacob, the physical descendants of Judah, 
He has not broken His promises to them. They know the Scriptures. And they know the promises. And God never lies. So He's going to come and He's going to save them when it looks like all hope is lost. Where are we in this? Where are we? What Scripture would you point to to say, well, this is where we fit in. When all of this fighting is taking place, when God is coming and putting down all the nations and fighting against them and cutting them in pieces, where are we? I would go to Jude. Let's go to Jude. We are very much a part of this rescue operation. We know that when Christ appears, those of us with the Holy Spirit will be changed and we'll be caught up together with him in the air. He's going to come with the clouds. We're going to rise and meet him in the air. And then whatever he does, we will be with him. So if he's coming and fighting against these nations, we'll be part of his army. He's called the Lord of hosts. He's, 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 a, he's a, a man of, of uh, military might. And he's not only going to have angels, he's going to have the saints with him. And here in Jude 14, Jude writes, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes. Does he come alone? No. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. That when the Lord comes and we see everything happening in Zechariah 12, he's coming with us. He's coming with all the saints. We are part of this army. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. So what we see here is ten thousands of his saints, which just means an innumerable number, are coming with Christ. And it's not just Christ who's coming to execute judgment. That the saints are executing judgment with him. So the saints, the ten thousands of his saints, are executing judgment with Christ. And that judgment is upon all to convince them to convince all that are ungodly, meaning they have another agenda. They have a doctrine that is opposite to God's. To conv- And they're so convinced of this doctrine that it's going to take an iron rod over the head to show them that they're wrong. To convince all them that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds. What you're doing is ungodly. You think you're doing it in the name of God. You think killing Jews and Christians is what God wants. God is coming to convince you that this is ungodly, that this has nothing to do with God. To convince all that that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And we see from Zechariah 12 that the, the center of the focus is Jerusalem. That it's Judah and Jerusalem that are the focal point of his return, and it's the ungodly nations that are fighting against Jerusalem that need to be brought to heal and rectified. So we are saving those who have been entrusted 
to us. Isaiah 61. The mission. What is the mission? Christ is on a mission. We're not on our own mission. We're joining Christ on the mission. And we see it here in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And Christ quoted this when he began his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news unto the meek, those without strength. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. But the mission didn't stop. There's more to the mission. And so let's read the rest of the mission. It's to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And that's what he's going to do when he returns to Jerusalem. All of that slaughter, all of the mourning that's taking place, he's coming to comfort his people that mourn and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. This is the mission. This is the mission we've been recruited into. It is to appoint unto them that mourn. When we return, when Christ returns with ten thousands of his saints, he's coming to complete this mission. And the saints are going to complete it with him. It's to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. The whole place has, is, has been devastated. It's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. But there's going to be a remnant that will be saved. And we are going to return with Christ to comfort that remnant, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He will be glorified in these people by the whole world. The whole world is going to read the scriptures and say, wow, what a God this is. Let's go up to Zion where we can learn the law from these people because God reigns there. Verse 4. And they shall build the old wastes. So all of this desolation, this remnant that is saved, will build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. These are physical people in the land of Jerusalem, that other physical humans are going to come and serve them. Strangers will come, they'll stand, and they'll feed your flocks. The sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. So this, all this hostility and hatred that was against Jerusalem, God is coming with ten thousands of his saints to convince all these ungodly people of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. And then their eyes are opened. And this hostility towards these people has ended. And they are now going to serve these people, seeing that they are this peculiar treasure to God. So the sons of the alien who was humiliating you, who was enslaving you, that person will now be your plowman and your vine dressers. But you, 
shall be named the priests of the Lord. These people in Zion, these physical people, this is fulfilling Isaiah 19, uh, sorry, Exodus 19. That Moses said, you will be a peculiar people to me. Or God said that through Moses. That you will be a kingdom of priests. Here it is. This is the mission. That Christ is coming to rescue these people and make them a kingdom of priests. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory shall you boast yourselves. So Gentiles are going to be coming from all over the world to Jerusalem with their offerings, with their wealth. And they'll be bringing it to this kingdom of priests. We'll be overseeing this operation. For your shame, so these are people who've been humiliated, you shall have double. And for confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. In their land. God is going to put them back in their land despite the agenda of the Gentiles. That the Gentiles just completely want to root them out, completely want to destroy them, want to burn the whole place down. And God's saying, no, I'm not going to have that. I said that you'll be in this land, and you will be. So this is the mission. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. When God comes, never again will they face devastation. That this wholehearted repentance that they go through, they can now be the nation that God wants them to be. Look at Acts 1. Acts 1, where we tie this in to the Christian calling. So this is the mission. How does it tie in to the Christian calling? We see this in Acts 1. In Acts 1, it's done. Christ has conquered the devil. He, he came to redeem Israel. He had to conquer the devil to do so. He did that. He's been resurrected. He's been training his disciples, the apostles, for 40 days. And in Acts 1 and verse 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? These people knew their scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They didn't believe in replacement theology. They knew that when Christ comes, he's, his mission is to put Israel back in place, to put them in the promised land and to have them as a kingdom of priests. And so they're asking, he, he just told them, you're going to receive power. They're saying, is, is this then when we fi- you finally fulfill the promises and you restore the kingdom to Israel? Because it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 30. It goes all the way back to the Torah, to Moses. So this is an outstanding promise that Israel have to be the peculiar treasure. So is this when you're going to do that? He doesn't say, what are you talking about? I've replaced Israel. You're the church. You're Israel. He doesn't say that. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. This absolutely will happen because it's spoken by God. This absolutely will happen. It's just not for you to know when. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. So you're going to represent me. You're going to be martyrs for me. You're going to speak this word of God on pain of death. You're going to promote the good news of the the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, even if it causes you to be put to death. You'll be my martyrs. 
A martyr, stand, a, a martyr bears witness regardless of the consequences. You bear witness to this truth. So this is how the Christians fit into the plan. We understand the plan. It's our job to promote the good news. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you're going to need supernatural power to do this because this is no easy walk. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So we need to be very clear that the rescue operation going all the way back to the Torah all the way through to Revelation, that the rescue operation is around restoring the kingdom to Israel. And we have been recruited as the early harvest to assist Christ in pulling off this rescue operation. Go back to the pledge. Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement, when I say, I hope I make it into the kingdom, and, and I need to do everything I can to get into the kingdom. I want to be a king. This is operating out of a focus on self-advancement. When I say, oh, I've got to get to the place of safety. No harm can come to me because I'm a Christian. I need to go to the place of safety. This is a complete focus on my personal comfort. So the Christian that's all about the place of safety and from there, straight into the kingdom to be a king and a priest. This is the epitome of self-centeredness. And it's the opposite of the mind of Christ, which the mind of Christ is all about others, not self. Look at Revelation 12. Revelation 12. And if we read this passage, this is a passage that many turn to, to show the place of safety. But if we read it in context, it says in verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. If we read this carefully, the woman is obviously Israel. And it's Israel that gives birth to the child. So it's very clearly, and we tie this back to, the, to Genesis, uh, the dream that Joseph had. It's very clear this is the woman with the 12 tribes. And she is the one that gives birth to Israel. We can't say this is the church, or it gives birth to Christ. We can't say this is the church. The church does not give birth to Christ. Christ is the one that founded the church. The church comes after Christ. It's Israel that gives birth, particularly Judah, that gives birth to Christ. In verse 6, when we say it's the woman is the church, in verse 6, and the church fled into the wilderness. And so we have a lot of false prophets preaching that stick with me, stay in my group, and I'll take you to the place of safety. 
But the scripture says the woman, the same woman in verse 1, which is Israel, that the, and particularly Judah that gave birth to Christ, that that's the woman that fled into the, into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared for God, that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. So this remnant, Isaiah says, unless there was a remnant left, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know the agenda of the devil is to completely wipe out these people. And God is saying, you can't. What I've spoken must come to pass. And so the devil's agenda is to completely destroy these people to destroy God's promise. But God will never go back on a promise. And so these physical people have to be protected. The church does not have to be protected. Our physical death means nothing because we have the Holy Spirit. We come back immediately with, on, upon Christ's return. So our, lo- our physical loss is nothing. And, and the, the true Christian stares death in the face with courage, with, with vision, understanding we have eternal life. Judah does not have eternal life. Judah needs to be brought to wholesale, wholehearted, deep repentance and then be given the Holy Spirit. But they have to be preserved in order for that to happen. And then in verse 14, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half the time from the face of the serpent. And then the scripture goes on to say, he then he can't get her, so he leaves her to make war with the rest of her seed, who what? Who keep the commandments of God. This is clearly the church. It's the church that, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Compare this to John 16. John 16. Does Christ promise the church a place of safety? Does Christ say to the church, your personal comfort is my highest priority? Or does he say to the church, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if you have to be martyred in the process, so be it. John 16, verse 1. Here comes the promise of the place of safety. These things have I spoken unto you, the church, that you should not be offended. Don't freak out over this. They will put you out of the assemblies. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. That doesn't sound like your your comfort. Your physical comfort is my highest priority. He's saying, by the way, people are going to kill you. And they're going to think that they're doing God's service for doing so. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you that when they when the time shall come to pass, you will remember that I told you of them. And these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. So it's very, very clear. Christ is telling the church repeatedly and several times in different ways, be prepared. Your physical life is nothing. It's your eternal life that matters. And you're going to be uncomfortable for a small period of time. Don't worry. I've got you covered. Don't worry about it. Because I'm going to bless you eternally. Let's go back to Revelation 3. 
where people will say, yeah, but it says so in Revelation 3 that the church will be protected. The Philadelphians will be protected. First of all, we would say, if you read the letters to the seven churches, those rewards that are promised are promised to all the saints. You're not going to have some saints with a name on their forehead and other saints um, being being kept from the hour of, of temptation. And some saints sitting, sitting on the throne with God, but other saints not. All those promises put together are the promises for all the saints. So this promise is not exclusive to just the Philadelphians. But he does say here, if you're faithful, in Revelation 3 and verse 10, because you've kept the word of my patience, this is the key. He told us beforehand what's going to happen. We're going to be faithful to that word. Because you've kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from what? What will God keep these saints from? Does it say, as many interpret it, I will keep you from the tribulation. I will keep you from the great tribulation. And yet many saints are slaughtered during the great tribulation. It doesn't say that. Very in, in the plainest of words, he says, you know, unless we read into the Bible what's not there. So many times we come to the Bible with a concept in our head, and we read that concept into the Bible. And I like uh, Sister Olivia's uh, analogy last week. Uh, it's a puzzle piece that kind of fits, but not really. And so we take a hammer, and we're bashing and forcing it to fit, and there, I did the puzzle. No, th- if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And so it doesn't say, unless we, ha- we have this in our mind and we read it in, it doesn't say, I'll keep you from the tribulation. It says, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. And which hour is, in case we're confused and we're not sure which hour this is, it's the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So this is a specific hour that's upon the world. In the time of tribulation, those who accept the mark of the beast, there's no tribulation for them. You avoid tribulation by accepting the mark of the beast. It's those that have accepted the mark of the beast that are going to be subjected to this hour of temptation. And those who don't accept the mark of the beast are going to escape this. Look at Revelation 18. What this doctrine of this place of safety is doing is it's breeding Christian cowards. It's breeding cowards who are not prepared to face anything, whatever the cost is. And it's breeding prophets, false prophets, who are manipulating their flocks. You better stay with me. And on, uh, on pain of um, being put out, Christians will compromise their, their, their moral values to stay with this group because this is the group that's going to the place of safety. Christians should be courageous. Wherever he leads, I'll follow. Whatever the cost is, at baptism, I said I'll pay the price. Revelation 18 and verse 4. And Christ says, I tell you beforehand, so you, when it happens, you won't be offended. Oh, it's happening now. This is exactly what Christ said. Revelation 18 and verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. I think we can agree that the Philadelphian Christians have come out of her. They're not participating in the Babylonian system. 
So they're not partakers of her sins. And if you're not partakers of her sins, that way you don't receive her plagues. So a time is coming that plagues are going to come upon Babylon. God's people who come out of Babylon will not receive these plagues. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who have committed porneia, sexual immorality, not, not, it says fornication, adultery, fornication, any form of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant is porneia. Flee it. We should have not, this is a, a form of worship of the devil. Just as sexual activity within the marriage covenant is a form of worshiping Christ and the Father. Who have, so the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her. They were having a great party. They were having a wonderful time. It was the saints who were suffering during the tribulation. And now there's been a reversal of fortunes. Now it's the kings of the earth who are bewailing and lamenting when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment. They won't even go close. But all of their wealth, everything has just come to an end. Saying, what are they saying? Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. This is the hour of temptation. This is the hour of trial that will come upon all the world. That the faithful saints will be spared from this wrath. Nowhere does God promise that he'll look out, that our personal comfort is his highest priority. His highest priority is the mission. And he said to his very apostles, you will be my martyrs. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Preach this gospel and you will be hated for my name's sake. But preach it anyway. Look at Romans 9 just to see the kind of mindset of the Christian. How does the Christian think when we have the mind of Christ? When the mind of Christ is dwelling within us, how do we think? Do we think of personal comfort and personal advancement? You know, I'm so good that when all of this starts to come down and fall apart, I'm going to be whisked away to a place of safety so that no harm comes to me. And then I'm so important that I'm go- in the place of safety, I'm going to be contemplating what is the highest rank that I will have. I know I'm going to be a king, but I just wonder how broad my kingdom will be. This, this, is, this is to me the Christian life. It's a wonderful life. No harm comes upon you. You get all the blessings and you just, we just spend our time contemplating how great we will be. This seems like Satan has somehow hijacked the mind of the Christian. Here I see the mind of a Christian. In Romans 9, here's the Apostle Paul, I say the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Like, listen, this is going to be hard for you to believe, but I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit empowering my thinking that is bearing witness to the truth of my soul. This is coming from the depth of my being, how I think. And it's Holy Spirit empowered. So this is how one thinks when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. This is coming from the Holy Spirit. 
This is how Christ thinks. And yet we are Christians. We couldn't care less. We care about rank and safety and personal comfort. This is wrong. That I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These physical Israelites, this great apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, I wish I could be accursed from Christ. If it could mean that these physical people could be saved. Who are Israelites. Paul knows the promises around Israel. And he's saying, I just want God's word to be true. I just want God's promises to be fulfilled. These are the peculiar treasure that he has chosen. And if it means that I could be wiped out and accursed, but they could fulfill the promises of God, I'm all for that. Because it's not about me. I'm far, I'm very willing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to sacrifice myself. My brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption. This is theirs. And the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Here is the apostle to the Gentiles, preaching powerfully the gospel, converting all these Gentiles, and he's grieved. He's burdened. He's saying, of all this successful preaching that I'm doing, and the Israelites are resisting the gospel, if I could give up my life, if I could sacrifice my eternal life so that they could be saved, let's do that. Very similar to Moses when God was going to destroy Israel. And Moses is saying, don't do it. Like, take my life. Very similar to Christ, who came risking his life. Verse 5. So they have the promises. Whose are the fathers? The fathers, they, they have the fathers. And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Why did Christ come? What was Christ's mission? It tells us right here. He came to redeem Israel. That was his purpose. That, this, this aligns perfectly with Isaiah. That of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. He means to put them in the promised land. Who is over all, God blessed forever. And then he says, like don't, don't get him wrong, he says, it's not as though the word of God has taken none effect. So he's there preaching and preaching and working and building tents at night and preaching during the day. And then he's saying, like, don't get me wrong. It's not as though the word of God hasn't taken any effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And he goes on to explain that there are physical Israelites who will be cursed, who will be destroyed, who will be burned up and will become ashes. But the promises pertain to Israel. So he's not saying that all of Israel is going to be saved. He is saying there is a component of Israel that will not repent. But God is still pursuing those that will. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's his whole, like they've got to be saved. This is, he understands the word of God. In chapter 11, 
And we really need to read and study 9, 10, and 11 together. Most Christians skip this. It's a very difficult passage. But if we know the plan of God, we can read it and understand what it's saying. Here in chapter 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So he does not want this. A Christian that does not understand the mystery of Israel is a disaster to Paul. This is a horrible thing that a, a Christian, a Gentile Christian, that, that doesn't understand the mystery of Israel. Paul is saying, I can't have this. Please. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Because if you are, you could be wise in your own conceits. You could actually begin to think you're something more than you are. So I can't have this. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. So here's what you need to understand about the mystery of Israel. That blindness in part is happened to Israel. So remember uh, the prophet Isaiah. That make sure that in seeing they don't see. That in hearing they don't hear. That their heart grows dull. Lest they should hear the, the word and repent and then not come to a true depth of repentance. They have to go through the washing machine. They have to be tumbled about and tossed about and go through devastation and desolation in order for God to bring them out of hypocrisy and into the depth of repentance. So as part of that process, blindness in part, and in part because he did say to his disciples, to you it's been given to understand the mysteries. But to those Jews over there, it's not been given. So it's part because the church was founded in Judah. Blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So there is a fullness of the Gentiles between now and the atonement where Gentiles are able to come in to Israel, and there seems to be a number that God is working with. And until that number is hit, Israel remains blind. Once that fullness comes in, Israel's eyes can be opened. And so, all Israel shall be saved. All Israel. And he says, not everyone in Israel is Israel, but all Israel, the true Israelites who come to full repentance. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, Israel's eyes will be opened, They'll be repentant from the depth of the soul and heart. They'll enter into the new covenant and they shall be saved and set up as this kingdom of priests. As it is written, and goes to Isaiah, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. The deliverer is for Zion. The deliverer is for Israel. He's going to come out of Zion. He has to. It's part of the redemptive process. And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So this desolation, the reason that there's bl they're blind is because they have to be brought through this desolation in order to be made clean, in order to stop being hypocrites, in order to stop uh, feeling like, oh, we're the Jews, we're, the, we're Israelites, we're wonderful people. God doesn't want this arrogance. He's looking for a kingdom of priests. And so they have to be brought through this process, and ungodliness needs to be turned away from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So God, although they're in blindness, 
His plan is to take away their sins. And every Gentile Christian needs to understand this. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. So, as a Gentile Christian, regarding the gospel, they've been blinded so that you can come in. So, because of this door opening for Gentiles, they've become your enemies. But this is for your sake. But as touching election, when God says, I have chosen these people, they are beloved for the Father's sake. We know they're sinful. That's not the point. The point is God chose them. And he says, uh, he, he hates Esau, but he loves Jacob. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God is not going to change his mind about these people. There's no replacement theology. These are the people. And all Gentile Christians cannot be ignorant of this mystery. Otherwise, our head swells, and we don't understand what, what is happening. Back to the pledge, he says, to the best of my ability, to the best of my ability. And a little while ago, <clears throat> I was looking through some report cards. My, my mother had saved all of my report cards through grade school and into high school. And so I just sat down one day, and I just started flipping through them, and they're all handwritten. And they all had a theme. Every one of them, every teacher, every year, said the same thing. Every one of them said, Adrian does not apply himself. And I, I just remember in school, I would just play all the time. And then the test is tomorrow, I would study tonight. So always, the, I see some, some nods. <laughs> always the night before, that's when I would study. And it worked. So I didn't have to apply myself. And year after year, teacher after teacher, Adrian does not apply himself. It's not until I quit school, or I say dropped out, had some hard knocks, some very hard knocks, suddenly realized it's important to get an education, that that's when everything changed for me. And that's when I started to apply myself because I had a purpose. And so I think the danger is for us being in God's church and not really understanding the purpose and therefore not applying ourselves. In, in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should be workers. We should be applying ourselves to understand. If we have the, the vision in mind, we have to understand God's word in order to teach it. Then we are going to be doing all we can to be useful to God when he returns so that we can be educators. If we don't have this vision, then we're going to play with the word of God. We're not really going to undertake our study seriously, realizing we have to teach this. And I do want to just say here, in terms of the best of our ability, let's turn to Ephesians 4, that we mustn't think individualistically. So it's not the best of my ability. By myself, I can do nothing. It's like walking down the street and you see a tongue on the sidewalk and it's just moving around. And you just think, what, what on earth is that? It's absolutely useless. It has no value. In fact, most people would probably just crush it 
being offended by, what is that? But a tongue in a body with a brain, that tongue becomes the most powerful instrument in the world, preaching the word of God. So every one of us are members of each other. We're members of a body. And if we're going to perform to the best of our ability, it's because we're going to perform together. When I was training for the Around the Bay race, one of the uh, trainers, one of the runners, I was complaining about some pain, and he said to me, the problem with middle-aged men, or middle-aged men and women, when they train and they run, their hearts and lungs get stronger and stronger. And I absolutely found that. While I was running the race, cardio was fantastic. It was at the 22K mark. It was my legs that started to give out. But what he said is, this sets middle-aged people up, and as we get older, for terrible injuries because we don't train the joints. And it's the joints that the, the heart and lungs begin to demand so much from the body that it blows out the joints. So whether it's the Achilles tendon, the knees, all these different tendons, and if Dylan was here, he could tell us the amount of people he treats, that it's not the muscles he's treating, it's the tendons, these fine ligaments that hold joints together. And this is the way we need to think. If we're going to perform at our best, our vulnerability, our inability to perform at our best is going to be in the joints. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So we're growing up into the head, which is Christ, which means we're beginning to think like Christ. The way Christ, as we grow up into the head, we begin to think the way the apostle Paul thought, like Christ. From whom, so from that head, that type of thinking, from whom the whole body fitly joined together that we're brought together by an expert, that we are placed in the body where it pleases him by an expert. We're fitly joined together and then compacted by that which every joint supplies. So we have to really think about our relationships with one another. If the joint is compromised, if we don't like each other, if we don't love each other, if we can't stand each other, if we are fighting against each other, when the, when the body starts to demand more, it's the joints that are going to blow out. And the prophecy tells us so. Brother will betray brother. It's the joints that will give out. Every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So we have to be edifying each other, working the joints, training the joints, building up the joints so that the body is prepared for this higher level of service. And he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So we cannot come into this Christian way thinking like the old man. We've got to adopt the mind of Christ. And then he says here that we must perform to the limitations of our physical and psychological 
endurance. And so we know these are going to be very, very trying times. And many, as I mentioned earlier, are going to betray. We need to be studying the Word of God. Uh, the pastors here are working hard to feed you with the Word of God so that you'll have the strength and we'll have the strength together to face anything. Matthew 24 shows us that. But I want to just get to that others may live. That others may live. In, Revel- in Romans 11, Romans 11, as we wrap up here. Romans 11. And this time, let's look at verse 15, where Paul is really working hard to have Christians understand the mystery of Israel. Because he's saying, I I can't have a Christian that is ignorant of the mystery of Israel. This will be devastating. This, This will enable the devil to come in and puff up the Christian and have them regard themselves more highly than they ought to. So he's working hard to get the Christian to understand the mystery of Israel. And he poses this question in verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, so because they've been blinded, Gentiles all over the world are able to come into this covenant. So Paul poses the question. If the casting away of Israel be the reconciling of the world, Ponder this. What shall the receiving of them be? When when their eyes are opened and they're brought into the covenant, what is that going to mean? If their blindness is such a blessing, what will their sight mean? But life from the dead. There is something deeply profound about this process being completed in Israel. But it's a process. And there's a period of time where they have to be blinded. And the gospel is then preached to the Gentile world, and Gentiles are brought in. But he he asks us to ponder that. Let's look at this final passage in Philippians 2. As we contemplate our calling, the mission we've been called to, our part in this mission, and how we ought to think. That the old man is selfish. The old man is self-centered. The natural human can't help but think about themselves always, all the time. We're not natural humans. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to think differently. We've been recruited into a much higher purpose. That requires God-level thinking. This is where, this is where we need to be. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, speaking to the Philippian congregation, Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It's not about us. Not about how glorious I can be. I wonder what level of king I'm going to be. Am I going to be the highest? This is not the type of thinking of a Christian. Let nothing be done through strife 
And I think uh, Pastor Murray during the Passover, uh, my view was Pastor Murray, Deacon Jan, brought out the conflict between the disciples over which of them would be greatest. Fortunately, then, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. But even with the Holy Spirit, there's this strife, competition. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So we are in this process where it's not about us. We're very quick to esteem others better than ourselves. And collectively, like Paul, we esteem Israel better than ourselves. Paul says, I would to God that I could perish if it meant Israel could be saved. Look not every man on his own things. This is all about my salvation. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're called to a purpose. It's a very high purpose and involves the lives of others. Let this mind be in you. Let's shed the carnal mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as Ephesians said, as we grow up into the head, Christ is the head. As we mature and grow up into him so that we're directed by him, we begin to think like him. This is how he thinks. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, being in the Godhead, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't cling to that. He didn't think that that was the most important thing, even though he was in the Godhead. Instead, he made himself of no reputation. This is not about me, he said. This is about redeeming Israel. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So he was, if he was thinking of himself, he would have stayed. He wasn't thinking of himself. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. If we are Christians, this is the mind we have. We humble ourselves, and we are just going to follow God even if it means death. We, 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 we made this decision at baptism. So there's no more, we don't have to struggle to decide. The decision's already made. And I love the passage in Daniel when the king sends out this new law that when the music is played, everybody has to bow down and worship. And, it, and the passage just shows Daniel just continued as if nothing happened. And he continued to pray to God as if nothing happened. Completely unfazed, un, unflappable. So this is, I, I worship God. You, you do what you do. I worship God. It wasn't a man that was worried about himself. So we say here, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the most horrendous death, even the most excruciating death, because his mind was on others. This is what it means to be a Christian. So let's conclude with this pledge, thinking of it, Biblically, that if, if these people can make such a solemn pledge, who are carnal people, how much more of a pledge can we make empowered with the Holy Spirit? How much more can we be committed to this rescue operation? That when it looks like all hope is lost, and these people are crying out for God, suddenly, as if out of nowhere, a ship appears, named Amen. Let God's word be so. Without regard 
for my personal comfort or self-advancement to the best of my ability and to the limitations of my physical and psychological endurance, I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to safety those victims of disaster entrusted to my care by the assignment of the mission to which I have consented. These things we shall do that others may live. With that, brethren, let's close in prayer and we'll say goodbye to our online audience and then I'll give the service back to Brother Landon to continue. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord God Almighty. We are in awe of you and of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we honor you, Father, and we honor Christ. We thank you so much for this way of thinking that both you and Jesus Christ have. We thank you for the incredible example that Christ gave us when he was here on earth. And we thank you for both of you, for your commitment to your word and just the impossibility of you speaking something that is not true, of you not fulfilling your promises. Father, we pray, and this is very difficult. We thank you for the days of unleavened bread. We thank you for this count now that we're in towards the Feast of Pentecost. And we pray, Father, as we rehearse these holy days, that and as we feed on your word, that you would transform us from the inside out, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to see what the carnal mind cannot see, and that you would enable us to think in ways that the carnal mind cannot think. Father, we praise you for your commitment to Israel. We know, Father, that this is a period of their blindness, And we see the blessing to the whole world in this period of Israel's blindness. And we pray, Father, that you'll help us to contemplate and understand and envision what their sight will mean for the whole world and in through eternity. We praise you, Father. Help us to get out of ourselves. Help us to fully embrace this mission that Jesus Christ started and that he has recruited us into. And we just pray, Father, that you'll be with all of our brethren and those that will be added. And we do pray for more to be added because the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. We thank you, Lord. We ask these blessings in the mighty name, the glorious name of our Savior and soon-coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.